again. This is Paul Manis, and this is The Man Behind the Letters. What we're doing is uh, taking a look at the Apostle Paul from the perspective of the relationships that he had, trying to take a look at the actual nature of how he treated people, how he engaged with people, some of his methods of communicating with people as a way of uh, underscoring his theological points, but taking them from a more human perspective. So welcome, and let's continue. Tentmakers around the world should be proud to number the foremost disciple of Jesus as one of their own. In this podcast, we'll explore some of the background of the man formerly known as Saul. We want to take a look at his life as much as we can, of course, behind the scenes to to know a bit about his heritage, his upbringing, his professional life, and his religious life. Two of these help to guide our understanding of the man behind the letters. As a young man, it appears that Paul, known at the time as Saul, was already preparing to support himself by learning the skill of tent making. As a tradesman, you see, Saul would be then able to support himself wherever he traveled. It would also allow him to fulfill the obligation of being responsible for his own personal support as he entered Judaic training as a Pharisee. Pharisees and scribes were were learned men, and under the requirement to make their own living by their own hands in order then to pursue their education and their service to the religious institution of Judaism. As the Apostle Paul, he mentions this several times to the Thessalonians about quote-unquote, not burdening them when he was visiting or not requiring of them to care for him. He could care for himself by being a tent maker. His tent making was his income to pay for expenses. We see this particularly in Ephesus. Paul had lived and preached there for several years. And then more dramatically, we see this in his arrival in Athens, He was left alone as Timothy and Silas had stayed behind in Berea. Paul did some work in the marketplace as he waited for them in Athens. And it was there that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So this incident seems entirely in sync with depicting his time in Ephesus and the association with the trade guild while he was there. We know about his family almost incidentally. Much of what we know of Paul is actually gathered by a careful listening to the lesser texts, if you will, about his life. His father was a Roman citizen and a Jew. Was he formerly a slave and finally able to purchase his freedom and citizenship, or was he able to purchase his citizenship as an advantage in his business? We know those were possibilities. His mother, most probably a good Jewish mother. In his family, we know he had a sister who was married with a son who apparently traveled with Saul's family when they went to Jerusalem during young Saul's pharisaical training under Gamaliel. The young nephew of Saul was to be instrumental in saving his uncle's life, 
because of the tensions between Jewish culture, pagan culture, Jewish traditions. In their hometown of Tarsus, the raising of children was difficult for a Jewish family. We may then have the background for the family's reason for taking up residence and moving to Jerusalem. A sketch of the background of Paul's life may reveal some of the reasons for his desire to defend his Jewish faith so intensely and also explain his passion as he embraced the newfound faith or as it embraced him. What we know from Paul's own reflection on his life from his letters and the book of Acts is that he was born and raised within the most normative, definable, and strict adherence to the Jewish law. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul traces his heritage and his ancestry for us. Paul was, quote, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, he says in Acts 22, 3. These verses need to be interpreted fully within their historical and religious context to draw out the reason for Paul even bringing up this information. But for the moment, at least, he gives us a wide open window about his upbringing and his early life. Though born in a Hellenistic city, his family followed the letter of the law in raising their child in a diaspora synagogue and then moved to Jerusalem in the tradition of Judaism and within the shadow of the second temple. He moved early in life to live in Jerusalem with his family and absorbed the honor of being a child of the covenant people in Jerusalem. We know about this from Acts 23, 16, where Paul references his nephew and his sister. His eighth-day circumcision was a badge of honor. His being of the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of Hebrews places his ancestry and family adherence to Israel at the very center of authentic Judaism. Paul's parents followed the exact details of the law, hence his circumcision and education in Jerusalem. He was dedicated by them to the service of the Lord, a strong and powerful theme and concern for families within Judaism. His heritage united him with the tribe of Benjamin, who owned the land on which Jerusalem was situated. Benjamin was born of son of Isaac in the promised land. Even Israel's infamous first king was Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. When the monarchy in Israel was falling apart, the tribe of Benjamin stayed loyal to the house of David. A more honored family in Israel you could not find. His given name, Saul, clearly had a strong family legacy. Only after his conversion on his first missionary journey is the Roman name Paul used of him. So in this study, I'll use Saul when pre-conversion references are intended. Otherwise, Paul. 
Saul was a man consumed by his Jewish faith. His life as a Pharisee within Judaism was no secret. His own admission, his own life as a champion of the Torah and a defender of the all-importance of the law was clear. Saul was raised within the tension between the Messianic community or purity of Israel and the pagan Hellenism of the world around him. Growing up in Tarsus, as he mentions in Acts 21.30, no mean city or ordinary city, provided him with face-to-face contact with the differentiation between the people of God and the goyim, the Gentiles. The people of God knew the name of their God, Yahweh. The Gentiles worshipped an unknown God and therefore an unnamed God. A God of silence as opposed to a God of the word. His education in Jerusalem at the feet of one of Judaism's most respected rabbis, Gamaliel, was another foundation builder for this defender of the faith. His own words in Galatians paint the picture of his intense passion for the tradition and faith of the fathers. He says in Galatians 1.14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Is this not a man after God's own heart? Even before his conversion, Saul was a passionate believer in the covenant and the God of the covenant. F.F. Bruce, in his work, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, suggests a theological caveat with which Paul might, might have agreed. Ancient Jewish tradition placed history in 2,000-year ages. The time following the period of the law would be the Messianic era. Could Jesus be the Messianic fulfillment of this new age? Saul might have agreed, but for one thing, and he calls this out for us in his writings. This so-called Messiah died on a cross as the ultimate disqualifier of his Messianic claim. The Old Testament was clear, was clear that anyone put to death by crucifixion was cursed by God, Deuteronomy 21, 23. If Saul had only seen the connection between the lamb slain and the suffering servant who takes away the sins of the people, and the works of Jesus' word and actions, he might have embraced the arrival of a new age and a Davidic king. But, but surely God could not curse the Messiah. May it never be, as, as Paul would often say. When, when Stephen gave his witness for Jesus at the climax of his speech and claimed that the Jewish leaders had killed the righteous one, That was for Saul, Jewish theological suicide. The idea that the Jewish leaders could put to death the Messiah, especially in that way, was too much. So Saul, steeped in the logic of the law, himself a witness to Stephen's speech, and enraged by Stephen's claims about Jesus, was consumed with a desire for justice against such blasphemy. The faith of the fathers was under attack, 
and it must be defended to the full extent of Jewish law. Stephen was stoned to death as Saul watched and condoned it. Saul's theology was safe and intact. Another heretic, stoned. Saul was vindicated and was now ready to act upon the expanding threat of this new way as it presented itself. He mounted a strategic course of events to deal with the threat. Seeking the highest permission possible, he was granted authorization letters to present to the synagogue in Damascus. We may surmise this as just a first-hand intended theater of operations, and there would have been more. He gathered his garrison and marched off to find, interrogate, and persecute those found guilty of heresy against the covenant of Israel. Therefore, he set out for Damascus to protect the Torah and the integrity of the faith once delivered. In his own words, he says, In Galatians 1.13, I persecuted the church of God beyond all measure and tried to destroy it. The attack on the Christians seems to have been more against those Jewish Christians rather than any God-fearers or Gentile converts that he may have known about. Saul didn't seem to care that much about the Gentiles. Why should he? So Paul's reputation among the Jewish churches was mounting. Saul was feared. All the more interesting is when we are told retrospectively in Galatians that, quote, the churches of Christ in Judea, that is around Jerusalem, heard that Paul, our former persecutor, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. For those of us on this side of the cross and having studied Paul and experienced our own Damascus road, it may be hard to understand the nature of Saul's anger at the church, as it was called in those days, the way. Saul was a student of the Torah. Does it not teach grace? In his reading of Abraham's life, did he not see the righteousness of faith? Any seminarian today is also a student of the entire Tanakh, the covenant history, the law and the sacrifices, the prophetic language, the judgments are all the same between then and now. The text has not changed. Is the Old Testament, especially the prophets, not internally clear as a revelation of the nature and the relationship of faith and the law? Hasn't God always cared more about people's heart than about their sacrifice? According to Paul's own revelation from the risen Lord, the law was a dead end. Had not the prophets already declared the same truth? Karl Barth has acclaimed the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel because of what it teaches. It's hard to see forward when you're always looking back. However, in Saul's meeting with the risen Messiah, Saul realized that his passion for the Torah and defense of the traditions had missed the mark. It was all misplaced. Salvation had never come from the law. At that time, Saul did not know that. Should he have known it? Other men of faith in the Old Testament knew it, 
men whom Paul cites as paradigms of faith, knew it. Nevertheless, Saul had missed it. His passion for the traditions of the fathers had made him blind to the faith of Abraham. He couldn't see that Hagar, too, was loved by the Lord and included in the covenant. He could not reconcile the harlot with the virgin. He could not see the man who hung on the cross and those who followed him as anything but heretics and offensive to faith. Those whose jackets lay at Saul's feet were the righteous ones. All others, those followers of the way, they claimed the zeal of the Lord, but were outside the law. And Saul was sworn to the law, raised under the law, and would kill for adherence to the law. Paul's own words are consistent with the traditions that we know within Judaism. Saul's vehemence towards the early church focused on what he knew about the tradition of his fathers. The track he was on was no different than those of the Pharisees who had confronted Jesus on so many occasions. One could almost conclude, though we have no direct evidence to support it, that Saul may well have been within earshot of Jesus, if not in a group that confronted Jesus on many occasions. The Gospels are full of the memories of Jesus' interaction with the Jewish authorities. Could the pre-conversion passion of Saul against the early Christians reflect his frustration over a meeting with one whom he had already confronted and, in a sense, against whom he had lost an argument? The website gotquestions.org under the label Jesus and Paul, actually does a fair job in outlining the guarded yet uncertain answer to the question, did Paul ever meet Jesus in person? But had Paul ever met Jesus, this article goes on to say, during Christ's three and a half years of public ministry is a question. Had the future apostle ever seen or heard Jesus in person? While we lack any evidence, there are several considerations that may favor the idea that Paul had possibly seen Jesus prior to the crucifixion. First, the article suggests, Paul had been a resident of Jerusalem as a child and was also there years later to approve of Stephen's stoning. The presence of Paul's nephew in Jerusalem after Paul's conversion suggests that Paul and his family had resided there for some time. Jesus was known to have visited Jerusalem. It is quite possible, the article suggests, that Paul could have seen Jesus or heard him speak during one of Jesus' several trips there. Second, the article points out that Paul's devotion to the law would have provided him motivation to be present in Jerusalem during Passover or other high holy days a time where both he and Jesus could have been in close proximity, in the temple courtyard, for example. Third, as a Pharisee, Paul would have been keenly interested in the teaching of a popular, if unconventional, rabbi. And as Paul told Herod Agrippa, the things Jesus did were not done in a corner, Acts 26, 26. Fourth, 
in one of Paul's epistles, the apostle hints that he may have had a pre-conversion acquaintance with Jesus. The text of 2 Corinthians 5.16 suggests this by saying, so for now, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer, end quote. None of these considerations in any way established that Paul had either seen or heard Jesus personally prior to Christ's death, but we can't say for sure whether or not it didn't take place either. From the entire biblical narrative, it would not be difficult to imagine God taking someone whose life was lived in darkness and shows them the light. As a biblical theme, that seems consistent with God's ways of mercy and grace. Saul, in all his antagonism to God, in the form of passion for God, like the Tower of Babel, will be brought down. Paul, as he advances in spiritual insight, will tell Timothy there are many who have the form of godliness but deny its power. Was that Paul's life too? There has been some discussion suggesting that Saul, in his pre-conversion faith, was troubled spiritually and was ready for a conversion of some sort. Though interesting, it's not really based on a common-sense reading of Paul's words. Clearly, there are psychological aspects and implications in the conversion of Saul, but to identify his experience in merely psychological terms imposed upon him is not only difficult to do, but short-sighted. Saul was a man of clear focus and intention. His understanding of his responsibility to the God of the fathers was without equivocation and consistent with what we know of Phariseeism at the time. I think Paul's feet as Saul before his conversion, were firmly planted on the soil of the promised land, which he was sworn to keep holy. Saul was seeing all too clearly when on the road to Damascus, his vision was cut off and his understanding of the ways of God dramatically challenged. We'll pick up that theme in our next podcast, where we look together more closely at the incident on the Damascus Road as we dive deeper into the life of the man behind the letters. <laughs>